to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. It is with Dr. Jess Petros. She is a visionary for the future of healthcare. She is trained in medicine at the University of Louisville. And Dr. Jess experienced what many of her patients experienced, deep anxiety, hormonal imbalances, and adrenal dysfunction. She herself sought out answers to uncover the root cause of disease. Something she thought she had learned in medical school, but her philosophy now embraces true health that encompasses the whole patient, mind, body, and spirit. She is an expert in the field of stealth infections and infectious disease, biologics and regenerative medicine, cannabis, ozone and environmental toxicities, which we'll hopefully cover a majority of those um, in the podcast. Uh, And Dr. Jess believes that personalized, preventative, and functional treatment plans are the next step to revolutionize healthcare. Uh, Without further ado, Dr. Jess, appreciate your time. Welcome to the Red Light Report. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Really honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. So outside of what I just told the audience, um, go ahead and give us a little bit of background and really how you came to, you know, where you are today. I mean, you have a, a wealth of knowledge and education from, you know, social media to your website and then your your course, which we can talk about in a little bit. Give us your path, your health journey, if you will. Sure. So I have been luckier than a lot of my patients, my clients um, over the years in that my symptoms were mild compared to a lot of people I see nowadays. Um, unfortunately, I've seen a sicker and sicker younger generation as I've gone throughout my own career in health. And me and myself, I went to medical school, conventional medical school at the University of Louisville, like you mentioned. And, you know, really back then, I, it was like a different world. I truly believed everything they taught me. And um, really bought it, a plan and sinker. And I think that was necessary for me to make it successfully through medical school was not questioning everything they taught me. I probably would have quit. When I got into residency, I got all my flu shots. I ate cafeteria food. I thought we didn't really know why people were sick. It must just be in our genes like they taught us. It really wasn't until I worked. I was very stubborn. It wasn't until I worked seven years in the hospital that things started to form cracks. The system started to show cracks for me. At that point, what really rattled me awake, honestly, was I started using social media as more like a blog to educate a little bit more. And when you get into that echo chamber, you start following others who are about health. And people would make these radical claims that I would think I wasn't taught about that. You know, they would have taught us about that because, you know, people are out for your best interest, right? Really, I, I had to know how to research. So I go research the claims and I was humbled a lot. And so that pushed me towards Gerson therapy. And in Gerson therapy, I would say the blinders were ripped off my eyes. Um, that's where they taught, you know, how dangerous Teflon and flame retardants were or about what was actually in the tap water we were drinking. And then it wasn't really safe for anyone to be drinking. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And then they would back it up with studies that showed that. And so that was really my call to action, if you will. Um, After that, I I got trained in ozone. 
I gave cannabis cards out on the West Coast and really was trained in that area, lectured at A4M on cannabis and the benefits of the endocannabinoid system. And now after going through some courses at Institute of Functional Medicine, I'm fully enveloped in, in what I would say root cause medicine is. Um, and that can be, you can be a naturopath, you can be a chiropractor, you can be a medical doctor, you can be any type of practitioner, as long as you understand that the body works as a whole systemic piece, not in separate organ systems, and that you're looking to get to the root cause, you're always asking why for your client or patient. It's just a perspective change, really. And since I've done that, not only am I happier and healthier and more grounded and balanced, but that's what I look for in the body as well and with my with my people. And that's my goal for them as well is to be happy, healthy, grounded, closer to nature, um, because happiness is, is ultimately about all of that, really. I love that story and your journey. And I think a lot of people that are that are in your shoes, so to speak, today um, had a similar path. I did my own way. You go through your you know, medical school training. And like you say, you kind of just drink the Kool-Aid because it's medical school. It must be correct, right? Like, don't question it. And then you get out into the real world and the allopathic, whether it's a hospital or outpatient or, or what have you. And you begin to realize it's not as uh, built up or versus the pedestal you put it on, so to speak. And so I would say a majority of the people never ne- necessarily wake up to that. I mean, they're just in the system and that's just kind of their entire career. It's pretty cool that you had the wake-up call you did and that led you to the path where you are today. So my question would be, um, initially, do you think medical school has changed at all since you went, or do you think it's still the same old, same old, so to speak? You know, I think a lot of times the the customers drive what's being sold, if you will. <laughs> and so um, I'm hoping that a lot of the new faces that are showing up in medical school are asking the right questions and demanding the change. You know, I think a lot of people know that nutrition is an important part of health now. That's not quite as cryptic as it was when I was in medical school a few years back. It's kind of a newer thing. And so I think that hospitals hopefully are having, I haven't been in a hospital in so long, but they're having to pivot a bit and think about their Coca-Cola and Pepsi contracts in the hospital, right? I hope that people are questioning that more and driving change because it's the consumers driving the change. And you guys are consumers of the hospital. They absolutely care what you think about. They used to have surveys, patient satisfaction, family satisfaction surveys. They're the biggest things that the hospitalists, we were all trained on it. Um, it's huge. And they go over your results every year with you. You drive the change because you are the consumer. So I'm hoping that the medical schools have changed. The hospitals have changed a little bit because the questions, are, I, if I had been asking different questions, it would have been a totally different experience for me. But I just thought these people are genuinely want to help make the world a better place and help make people better. I truly believe that. So why would I question that? And just to a point too, Mike, like, let's think about if you're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars, which we are, for a medical school education, it's a very tough pill to swallow to think that you were being sold half truths. No one, would, you know how angry people would be. Yeah. Very. <laughs> right. That's a very good point. Yeah, you're paying for that education or lack thereof. Ironically, a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know the answer to this question. I like to ask people that went through medical training. And how long was medical school for you? 
four years. How many? Four years. Four, four, four after um, undergrad, correct? Correct. Okay. How much did you learn about light as it relates to healing? None. Right. Not in a little bit. I mean, we learned about photosynthesis. That counts as something, right? <laughs> That's about it. And you le- we learned about how light can be converted into use in me a little bit in a very cryptic, scientific, left-brained way. We learned about how light can be turned into energy and used in the Krebs cycle and electron transport chain. But I'm taking a few steps to get there, right? Right, right. kind of yeah. a reach. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into light and some red light therapy later, but I want to dive into your expertise and kind of one of your claims to fame is your you know, Dr. Jess detox program where you outline kill, bind, and sweat. Can you kind of walk us through that however you want to, maybe the reason for it, or just go through the kill, bind, sweat and why they're important and the role that they play for healing? Sure. So actually this was a mistake. I just kind of hashtagged it online and it sort of went caught like wildfire just because I think it's pretty sexy sounding and catchy and people wonder what the heck that is. So kill, bind, sweat um, is now a trademark called mine. Um, And it seems to help a variety of conditions. And the reason is, is because it's helping just your body generally detox and a number of things that can come out in sweat. So kill represents um, taking an, I prefer an herbal antimicrobial, uh, you know, or, you know, biofilm buster. We can talk about that too, if you want. Um, and then after taking a binder that you may have around your binder of your choice, um, be sure to time it away from the kill supplement so it doesn't bind that up as well. And then finally, hopping in a sauna, some of your drainage pathways. If you're one of those people that say, I don't sweat, I listen, or I never have been able to sweat, that's not really good because this is not only keeps you cool, but it's a way that our body gets rid of a lot of different toxic chemicals, things like your PCBs or some of the heavy metals are released easier in sweat, like mercury, nickel, cadmium. And it really helps turn on heat shock proteins, which are tied to our immune system. They let misfolded proteins that have been folded improperly refold again and give them a second chance to call for the proper proteins. And so there's all these benefits from letting your body undergo this little stressor if you will, your body also with the binder kind of says, oh, okay, we're doing this thing. We're binding things up. We're mopping them up. We're getting them out. So you may notice you have a more ready sweat response with a binder present in your system too. Interesting. In the misfolded proteins, that just kind of brought something to mind for me as it relates to the mitochondria, because you have your first and second fold. Those are kind of the most basic folds, the first and the second, but the, uh, the tertiary and the quaternary have to do with really your mitochondrial health and the amount of energy that that mitochondria has. So if you have a dysfunctional mitochondria where it's kind of below its ATP production, I guess, homeostasis, then that tertiary and that quaternary fold issues happen there. And that's where, like you're talking about, you have these misfolded proteins, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but there are a lot of downstream effects. So 
that you had to think about something like, you know, Alzheimer's or some of those neurodegenerative conditions where they have things like tau proteins that are found in their brain or neurofibrillary tangles. We actually think that might be a protective mechanism. Your body is like walling off maybe fat soluble toxins or something that are stuck in the brain. So we don't just want to remove those necessarily, but we do want the body to say, hey, there's something there that's stuck that's keeping us sick. So letting the body turn on and turn on the immune system in a burst and being able to refold those misfolded proteins on its own is a second chance for the body to re-equilibrate, if you will. And that's what I feel like infrared light, red light, sauna, all those things do for people. And like you mentioned, the mitochondria, they're in every single cell except red blood cells. Certain organs have more mitochondria because they have they need more energy or ATP, like you mentioned, some of those are our brain. You're always thinking it's always going. So you need a lot of mitochondria for the brain. You need a lot for your liver, your skeletal muscle. You move a lot, your heart, which is always beating. These make, this makes sense to people. So if, if the mitochondria aren't functioning right, there's a lot of different organ systems and chronic diseases that can present that way. Just regular sunlight even can help our mitochondria, right? There's many ways. Where do you live now? Do you live in a sunny, sunny state? Yeah. I mean, I'm below the Mason-Dixon line. I'm okay. in uh, North Carolina. Yeah. Nice. So you don't necessarily get the summertime blues? No, but I will tell you, I lived in Portland, Oregon for three and a half years. So I don't know many other places you can think about it being kind of gloomy for eight, nine months of the year, right? Yep. Overcast. Yeah. And it's a real thing. Like you're saying, I mean, even the modern lifestyle where people might live in Texas or California, but they just don't go outside. So, I mean, that's just as, you know, negative as being in a place where the sun's not outside or it's just overcast and cloudy. Back to this detox program with the sauna, because I get this question quite a bit, like which sauna is better, just like a normal finish, like high heat sauna or an infrared sauna? Is there a difference or is it just the, the fact that you're sweating is what ultimately matters? You know, sometimes I worry about something like a steam sauna, especially if someone has problems in their sinus cavities, they have like, you know, candida or mold there. Something with like high humidity and moisture in the air may not be their best bet. I prefer infrared just because of the benefits that it has. And red light is similar. There's some studied benefits for both of these. In general, if people can't find something like red light or infrared, then yeah, I'd rather you sweat than not sweat probably. That's even more abnormal, never sweating. So first choice, definitely infrared for me. And that's just because there's some studied benefits of heat shock proteins, like I mentioned, and some other benefits of skin for skin and things like that, that infrared in general shows. And you can be at different depths with far infrared, near infrared, all these things. But in general, you guys, if you can't find that, don't don't sweat it. Ha ha. Just make sure that you are sweating. I even say to people, if you don't even have a sauna, go get in the hot Epsom salt bath. You know, drink some ginger tea beforehand and heat your body up. I even find it's hotter to sit in the hot bath than it is in a sauna. I'll get kind of lightheaded that way. Mm. Or just working out, moving your body is a great way to trigger the sweat pathway. It's just that it takes a little more work and proactivity on, on your guys' part. <laughs> Definitely. And so this might be kind of an obvious answer to this question, but what are the negative downstream effects for someone who doesn't detox on a regular basis or who doesn't sweat on a consistent basis? And then I guess the second part is how often should one be detoxing? 
So if they don't sweat, there's a number of different reasons for that. Um, I used to think that it was just a, a stock stagnant lymph pathway, which a lot of people have. I personally had that until recently. I had to work very hard to unstick it because we stick a lot of motions in lymph. And we don't drink enough water, which helps our lymph move. The other reason, though, the biggest reason, in my opinion, is we mentioned already dysfunctional mitochondria. And that's because mitochondria make ATP, which equals energy, which equals heat. So, so many people have the toxins inside their mitochondrial DNA, which don't have the same repair mechanisms as regular DNA. And then their mitochondria are not able to perform the passing of electrons throughout the cycle, right? To make ATP, they use oxygen to do so. And so if you're not getting enough oxygen, um, you're not breathing well, you're full of toxins, your mitochondria probably, you'll probably be pretty tired. You might have brain fog, heaviness, and you may not sweat well. And so for you guys, I, I would say go really slow, especially if you get hot and lightheaded and your heart rate goes up in the sauna, which I see a lot of. Stay in five minutes, less than that if you need to. It's okay to try and just tack one minute on each week just to see how you do and to titrate up very slowly. For some people who are very sick, it's kind of like, kicking up dust at a construction site and the body sees things that it missed because you're revving up the immune system and you're pulling things out of the body through sweat and the body goes, Oh, I missed you. You know, sound the alarm, send the heart rate up, make them breathe harder. When your body sees pathogens or toxins it missed it's kind of like an SOS and so your conscious self will fill that in the sauna so go very slow and easy on yourself if you're that person you can move past that though I've seen plenty of people move past that and be able to break through that sweat pathway and then you're savage sweaty beasts after that <laughs> and that's where you want to be ultimately right yeah that's a good sweater healthy. you want to be sweating like within 10 minutes in a sauna really wow Maybe for some specifics, like what if someone has an infrared sauna or like one of those therisage where you can kind of sit inside that box, what is the goal temperature? What's the goal duration? Can you be in there too long? What are your thoughts there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And some people, I've definitely met those people, you probably have too, where they say they feel great in the sauna and then they get out in a few hours later, they're white for the rest of the day. They can't even get out of bed. So those people, you really have to be careful. That's why I'd rather you guys start slow and warm up rather than just full on out if you're a newbie. You can definitely be in a sauna too long. I rarely recommend no longer than 35 minutes. And that's for people who know their bodies well and have saunted before, right? Um, if you don't know your body, you're not sure, you feel pretty sick, you haven't done sauna, I would rather you literally stay five to 10 minutes. Maybe you don't even sweat the first time because you feel so rotten and that's okay. So there's not really a concrete answer for me to give here. It's sort of like you have to feel into yourself, but ultimately our goal is, you know, three to four times per week max. And you want to stay, you know, no longer than 35 minutes or so in my opinion. And if you're those people who get lightheaded or dizzy easily, you really need to think about electrolyte mineral replacement after the sauna sessions. So think about something, you know, to add to your water to really replace things like sodium, potassium, magnesium, some of those minerals that you can actually sweat out. And if you lose, you know yourself, if you lose minerals quickly, then you're someone who needs to replace. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And just to backtrack from your previous answer, you talked about the mitochondria and how they can have an effect on your 
uh, lymph system moving and, and ultimately sweating, correct? And you said it's because of the mitochondria releasing heat, which is completely true. As part of the energy production system, yes, it produces ATB, it produces water, but it also releases that infrared light. So you're saying if your mitochondria aren't you know, producing energy like they should, or the, we can call them dysfunctional, that can have an effect on your lymph system. Well, it can have a, it can have an effect on just your ability to produce heat. There are mitochondria in, in all our cells, right? Except red blood cells. So they are in the lymphatic system as well. Um, but I think they have, it has to more to do with just producing ATP all over the body, which equals energy, it, which turns into heat, right? By physics laws. And so that's what I think it has more to do with. Now, people can also not sweat because their lymph is stuck. But honestly, it's more so mitochondria, in my opinion. I don't want to underplay underscore the lymph. It has a lot of a lot of important jobs and is super underplayed too. But in the case of sweating in a sauna and red light, infrared light, that's triggering mitochondria. So if you're having problems there, I think it's more of a mitochondrial issue. Definitely, that makes sense. And with that being said, outside of you know this detox program that involves sweating via a sauna, what other things do you suggest? to your patients or do you do for yourself to optimize your mitochondria and mitochondrial health? For sure. So I have, you know, my little biohacks that I love just like everyone else, but I really want this healthcare to be accessible to everyone. And that's one of the biggest problems I have with, with functional medicine is it's not accessible to everyone yet. So that's a goal of mine is to make this more broad, more popular and more accessible to everyone. So I want to give tips here that everyone can do first off. So first off, if you feel like, oh my gosh, that's me, I have brain fog and my body's heavy. I feel like I don't feel like getting off the couch. I have pins and needles sensations on my extremities. That sounds like mitochondrial that you can't sweat, right? We just talked about that. So really grounding, you guys, going out and in the grass, putting your bare feet on the grass because the earth has negative ions that you can absorb. Negative ions can neutralize positive charges in the body that we don't want there. They can also pull out things that we don't want there and they can help mitochondria because mitochondria use ions and charges to transfer electrons, right? Makes that much sense. Sunlight is another way. Sunlight is necessary. You know, not only do we know that plants need it for photosynthesis, we need it as well to, to convert energy. And that's why some of the lights, the LED lights, the blue lights that we're under a lot of times our jobs all day long are not good for energy systems. We need, really need actual sunlight. Um, so really walking, moving your body in the sun is some of the best ways to help your mitochondria. I've seen people killed just from sunlight alone. So these are free things that people can go do. Then there's some other really cool hacks for mitochondria. There's some great supplements, things like acetyl-L-carnitine, fulvic and humic acid, or shilajit. I really love resveratrol. I love D-ribose. There's so many different wonderful supplements for mitochondrial health. I also love things like hydrogen ionic foot baths, which help create an electromagnetic gradient and absorb through the feet. I love things like red light, right? That's also turns on mitochondria, infrared saunas, like we talked about. There's a bunch of different things people can do to help restore mitochondrial health. And then the number one most important thing is to go over your daily exposures and triggers and make sure that there's not something that you're exposed to every day that's contributing to this because you don't want to be spinning your wheels. 
doing all these hacks. And then, gosh, it was that you had mold in your house the whole time. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids. And most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.shop. That's why I love calling the mitochondria basically their environmental sensors. So if there's something in your environment, whether it's a lack of light or non-native light, or it's unhealthy water or you're not connecting to earth or like you're saying black mold something in your environment yeah. your mitochondria are going to be one of the first to to sense it and then over time if the environment isn't changed or altered or improved i mean they're going to become more dysfunctional and that's kind of the downstream effect is ultimately some sort of diagnosis because according to dr doug wallace i don't know if you're familiar with with him dr jess but top mitochondrial research in the world. And, and uh, he's gone on record as saying about 80% of modern diseases are directly tied to mitochondrial dysfunction. So another way we can say that is that about 80% of our, our modern day diseases are tied to poor environment, poor daily habits, which is liberating because if you can identify them, then it's a relatively easy fix yeah. versus going through the prescription pad and pill or surgeries or, or X, Y, and Z. Maybe all you need to do is get outside, get some sunshine, get your bare foot to the earth, get out in nature, move, get some clean water and so on and so forth. I, I agree. I kind of see mitochondria as saying, hey, you're not living in alignment with what nature intended and what the universe intended, whatever you see is that, and that you need to live closer to nature because really if people get out of the cities away from the Wi-Fi, away from the pollution, the air pollution, the petroleum everywhere, toxic people sometimes, and return to nature, a lot of them would heal, be able to heal beyond their dreams. So our mitochondria are helping us realize that. Yeah, 100%. And they're pretty darn resilient. You give them what they need and want, and you're able to potentially mitigate, prevent, reverse some mitochondrial dysfunction. So very resilient organelles for sure. But moving on to some other stuff, especially with, with your knowledge and expertise, black mold, Lyme disease, these types of things can be notoriously tricky to, to treat and deal with. So I'm just curious, is treating things like those and then autoimmunity or autoimmune diseases as well? My question is, do you use that detox programs with those types of diagnoses or issues, or are there other ways that you attack kind of difficult health conditions? Yeah, for sure. Great question. So 
I will use turbine sweat quite a bit with some of the other conditions, but everyone does have a general bio individual approach. I think part of the problem with medicine is they try to standardize and protocolize, I just made up a word, (laughs) put protocols in place and and a lot of the hospitals and clinics. And the problem is not everyone's body functions the same. Everyone's very unique and individual. And so there's a general recourse to most of this. So with everyone who comes to you sick, usually if you will screen their natural emunctories or drainage pathways, their body's natural way that they release toxins, you'll find that most chronically ill people are blocked somewhere. And what do I mean by that? I mean, usually we just said most people can't, some people can't sweat. That's a block sweat pathway. That's not normal. So they're sick because they're holding on to toxins. They come into exposure with the cost years of their life sometimes. Some people can't go to the bathroom regularly. They have chronic constipation. That means they're holding on to toxins. They probably have a lot of brain fog and bloating and things like that. And that often leads to autoimmunity because they're holding on to exposures, right? You can look at every drainage pathway this way, the liver, our lymphatic system, our bile, and the list goes on. So really, I start everyone there. And that's very bio-individual approach. Because, but everyone has the same glands and organ systems. And you really have to look at the body and how it functions as a whole because the brain doesn't discriminate between a different organ. They have crosstalk between all organs and emotions are held in certain organs as well. And so all of this has to take in, you have to take this into play when you form someone's individual protocol. I always start with drainage pathways, even if they come to me with autoimmunity, cancer, or mold, like you mentioned. Once their drainage pathways are open, because you don't want to go killing anything until people can release what you're killing, or they'll be pretty mad at you. So, you know, once I do that, once I open them up, I will incorporate things like pillbine sweat, which works wonderfully and the probably the best for any sort of water damaged building where people are holding on to mold spores or hyphae that needs to be pulled or sweated out the lymphatic and skin systems. So, um, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, definitely. So it's very bio individual, like you said. Depends on how the person presents. Everyone, you know, has a different background, different environment. Uh, with that being said, do you also tackle the person's environment, kind of get a sense of how they live their day to day lives, whether it's home or work or, or whatever? Do you kind of tease out their environment and try to make some switches there too? Absolutely. That's, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. There are some people who are so sensitive, their genetic predispositions or sometimes trauma early on make them so sensitive to toxic overload that I can't even get them close to better until we are out of the moldy home or out of the bacteria infested home or out of their workplace with toxic people and some black mold on the ceiling, you know, or out of their abusive relationship. There are all these things that play a part. Um, and I can't go live with someone in a nine to five, eight hour day to say, Hey, don't eat that. You know, you need to go to bed right now. Why are you staying with this person? That's what I mean. When I say you heal you, you have to become your own best doctor because really it's your daily habits, thoughts, idiosyncrasies, belief patterns that make up health on a large scale. Gotcha. That makes sense. Moving on to a topic I'm not extremely familiar with, biologics and regenerative medicine. Maybe we've already been talking about this a little bit with some other topics, but can you kind of go into those biologics and regenerative medicine and kind of how that plays a role with treating patients? Yeah, absolutely. So all of these fall into a heading of with regenerative medicine with ways to have the body heal itself, basically. So you can think of things like if you've ever heard of prolotherapy or 
PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma. And finally, the ultimate, which is stem cells or exosomes. These are ways that we kind of recruit the body's own healing capabilities to regenerate certain joints, tissues that are inflammatory or degenerative over time. With stem cells, is it still relatively difficult to get, I guess, the most potent type? Because I believe I interviewed someone last year in Atlanta, and he claimed he was like the only clinic in the U.S. to do a certain type of stem cell. There are different types. There are things like um, mesenchymal umbilical cords, right, right, which are what I performed um, years ago. And then there are things like bone marrow, where they harvest stem cells from the bone marrow, which is definitely FDA approved and okay. And then there are different ways to get like SF the type of stem cells that are harvested from other areas like fat tissue and things like that. It depends on, I'm not sure which one, people have very different opinions about which one's the best here. I think it's become much more popular even over the last you know handful of years, five years, 10 years. Treating with stem cells, do you think it's going to become more ubiquitous over time? Because as far as like giving someone who has arthritic joints or just back pain that can't be solved by X, Y, and Z, it seems like stem cells are very safe and highly effective way to giving someone's, you know, body, organs, joints, some rejuvenation. Yeah, absolutely. With mesenchymal umbilical cord stem cells, there are some ethical concerns about harvesting umbilical cord stem cells, right? Um, There are some other concerns about how long it lasts for some people. It very much depends on the age, overall health, and other exposures of the person receiving the stem cells, as well as the diagnosis, right? Which kind of lets you know how full their toxin bucket is, how devastating the diagnosis is. And so some people have wonderful results with those that last, and some people don't, and some people, which is rare, and then some people's results last six to eight weeks before they need more. And this is not... A very affordable treatment for most people. They're very expensive. The FDA was cracking down, at least on umbilical cord stem cells in the United States and how clinics were giving those recently. So I think that although people, more people are interested in them, the FDA it makes things very difficult. And so really you need to do your research. They weren't regulated properly in the United, United States, I will say that. And bone marrow is really legit, but it's a more invasive procedure for people. And again, none of it is, is, is cheap. Right. And, and on part of that, you know, as it becomes more popular, maybe more, more um, efficient with the way it's done. Do you think the cost will come down and make it more affordable, less uh, cost prohibitory? Yeah, I'm hoping so. I think that would be more fair for the people. Um, in the meantime, I'm sure everyone can go down to Mexico if they can't find what they need here too. Right. Right. That's what I've heard. And along those same lines, what about ozone therapy? What what type of uses does it have? How is it used? And is that something people can do to themselves at home? Or do you need like a, a trained physician to carry out that treatment? No, it is. You know, if people, especially if they get trained in ozone courses, you know, nurses, other people, there are lots of people who know how to administer ozone. Pretty amazing. You know, the city water uses it to, complete, to clean the municipal water supplies. And hyperbaric oxygen treatment, which is what ozone turns into, is hyperoxygenation, is used in hospitals for neurologic problems. With ozone, you can even do limb bagging. Let's say people have 
you know, a diabetic ulcer, a diabetic foot that needs amputated, you can actually put ozone in a bag, put it over the foot and hyperoxygenate that foot and sometimes save the limb from amputation. So um, ozone has this amazing um, regenerative quality because it hyperoxygenates the tissue. It also creates H2O2 in the tissue, which is hydrogen peroxide, which naturally helps disinfect and what our white blood cells produce anyway. So it's a pretty natural treatment. The risk of it is you don't want to smell the gas. It is a respiratory irritant. And so that's why the FDA and other things have said they don't recommend it is because it's a respiratory irritant of all the things that they do that is crazy. So I will say one of the most popular ways to use ozone is IV. They will take your blood out, push ozone in it in glass syringe because ozone breaks down plastic, has to be glass. So mm. push ozone into a glass syringe into the blood and you'll see your blood turn from maroon to about this color red on my shirt, so bright red. And it's hyperoxygenating the blood. They then jerk the blood back into the vein. This is major autohemotherapy or IV ozone therapy. I really like at home use of ozone and in insufflations. And you can do insufflations in the ears, and the vagina for women, especially if there's female cancers or issues there, um, or rectally for things like colon cancer. And that we've shown that some of these insufflations, because the area has so much blood tissue and capillary supply, you can get the same levels with insufflations that you can with IV ozone. So one disclaimer with I, that I leave people with with ozone is that it is a kill form of the treatment. So if your drainage pathways aren't open or your body isn't prepped, you might have healing detox reactions from ozone therapy. So the same goes for any kill treatment that I recommend open your drainage pathways first. And just to clarify, when you're doing the ozone IV, is that to boost your immune system? Is that the point systemically or what is the purpose there with the yeah. IV? So ozone is antibacterial, antiparasitic, and antiviral. It's just antipathogenic in general. So it really can get rid of a lot of microbial infestations that are causing the body to be out of homeostasis. You're leading to autoimmunity. It really is great for cancers and really great for people who have things like Lyme disease, mold, toxicity. But like I said, make sure since it's a kill pathway, you take with caution. So I would say it helps to put the body back in homeostasis if it's under attack. Is it not one of those treatments you'd want to do once in a while prophylactically, or do you only utilize it when kind of there's a red flag in your body and you want to use it? I would say I need a re- you need a reason to do it. It can wipe out the good flora as well. Like for instance, in the mouth, it can actually get rid of good flora in the mouth too. So you really want to use it respectfully and with good education behind it. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Use it judiciously, not, not as a uh, supplement per se. Yeah. Let's move on to cannabis. And that's something I haven't really talked about on this podcast, but with your knowledge base, kind of give the audience the pros and cons, if there, there are any about cannabis its potential uses, how it can help health and wellness overall, and kind of how you utilize it with with yourself and or uh, patients. Absolutely. I've definitely utilized cannabis in my life when I've had traumatic things happen to me to get over them. Cannabis, a lot of the research that we have with cannabis that's super, super enlightening and promising is around things like PTSD and people who've had these traumatic experiences where your brain fires in a certain rut where you have a story or a trauma that triggers you every time you think about it and your brain fires in a certain way, 
And what cannabis has been shown to do is reform those neuronal patterns and pull the brain out of that rut so you can form new connections, which is what all things like trauma work and things are hoping to do is form new brain connections so you can think about an experience a different way. So that's what cannabis shows promising results for, as well as pain, especially things like osteoarthritis, migraines. There are certain female things like endometriosis. Um, even migraines, like I mentioned, are they're thought to be an endocannabinoid deficiency. And what I mean by that is our body has a full endocannabinoid system from our head to our bowels with CB1 and CB2 receptors that we need to be triggered and working in a certain balances and checks and ratios. So if there's a deficiency anywhere in the body, the body is out of normalcy or homeostasis, and that's where problems start to form. So sometimes temporarily triggering the body with things like that. If it's under stress or it's out of homeostasis can help bring it back to normalcy. The problem is that a lot of the people now are manufacturing high THC cannabis, which is not what nature intended. So I recommend things like CBD with just the legal amount of THC in it enough to have a synergistic effect or whole plant effect on the body that doesn't seem to have the addictive quality of some of the high THC cannabis in some of the legal cannabis states. I would also recommend while you're doing this, helping with pain, helping with migraines, helping with cycles, helping with inflammation, whatever you're looking to use cannabis for or CBD for, but you're also trying to get to the root cause rather than use a Band-Aid because natural pain reliever that nature provided you don't want to use that forever. And I believe, isn't it 0.3% THC is kind of that or below? And does it matter if it's hemp derived or do they even do CBD oil with marijuana leaves? I think most states prohibit it. There's not, there's not a hard, easy way for them to tell unless they visit the factory, really, because once it's all distilled and done out, it, it appears the same. There's not a way to tell. I prefer it from cannabis rather than hemp, but that's hard to find nowadays. A legal limit is 0.03%. And it's just a sprinkle enough in there to activate the entourage effect or the terpenes and cannabinoids act in sort of a synergistic fashion, almost like an orchestra. So when you remove certain um, constituents of the plant, the plant doesn't work quite as well. And in some of the studies we've seen, it's sort of the sum is greater than the parts. No, that makes sense. And is that something you would have or you would suggest people utilize like a supplement, like on a consistent basis? You know, if, if they're dealing with something acutely, yes. I've had personal experience with this plant. It can be addictive. You know, um, I've seen people be very addicted to it because of the way they're manufacturing it now and selling it in dispensaries, right? So you need to be careful with what you're putting in. Make sure it's a balanced part, balanced plant, right? It's as nature would have intended, which is not that high of THC, right? I bet nature never went above probably 9 or 10%, honestly. Um, and now you see people with it, what, 50% of the plant? It's just not how nature intended anymore. So if you are using CBD, that's great. CBD doesn't seem to have a lot of the negative side effects that long-term high THC cannabis does. If you look at some of Dr. Amon's MRI specs studies of the brain, he'll show kind of craters or holes in the 3D scan of the brain with chronic cannabis use. And some of our questions are, is this cannabis sprayed with pesticides? You know, does it have mold growing on it? 
Um, how has it grown? And what's the THC content of that? So all of these should be questions you're asking when you're looking at how to consume cannabis. You don't want that that nasty stuff on your medicine. Gotcha. Yeah, because it seems like if you're not doing your um your own research or due diligence, you could almost be creating or wreaking more havoc on your body than than doing good in a way. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to use any of this stuff long term. If you're having chronic pain, chronic anxiety, chronic cycle issues, you really need to be asking why not not true not changing your ibuprofen for CBD. It's still a band aid. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that kind of brings up another question I have for you, because as a physical therapist, chronic pain is one of the toughest things to treat. Well, chronic anything. So I guess my question to you is when you see someone that has a chronic issue, which I believe, you know, in the medical world is six months or more. I don't know if that's, that's the same for you, but especially chronic pain, it's difficult to treat because pain is caused by inflammation in the area that sensitizes the nerves and sends pain signals to your brain. So if it's still in its acute phase, as long as you remove that inflammation, the nerves become desensitized, thus you lose the pain signals and your pain disappears essentially. But in chronic pain, the inflammation is actually gone. It's left, yet you're still receiving the pain signals because the pain's imprinted on your brain. So my point with all that is to ask you, when treating someone with a chronic issue, whether it's mental or, or pain or physical, how do you go about that? It's difficult. I try to explain to people as you have pain, PTSD of the brain, your brain remembers that pain and is sort of stuck in the on position. Right. So I really have all my patients like this get a book by Alan Gordon called The Way Out. And they actually had their results published in JAMA in the Journal of American Medical Association. I think it was a 60% remission in pain, not just decreased remission. It was gone with these techniques about how to reframe thinking about pain in the brain because it's your brain that remembers the pain. The body is actually healed. It's your brain that's stuck in that PTSD cycle loop of firing, um, thinking that it's still, it's freaking out. It thinks it's still in pain, even though you may be healed. And so that's what we need to address is that pain loop cycle of the brain. And so I really love that book. It does a great job at educating people about how to reframe that, that for them. And then, you know, there are band-aids I use too. You know, I love CBD cream topically, actually, for, for joints, muscles. I love things like myofascial release and breath work because I find that a lot of people's pain aren't in the bones. It's in the connective tissue and the soft tissue and the fascia and lymph. And so a lot of lymph massages, breath work, myofascial release, fascia blasting, um, physical therapy, Thai massage, stretching, yoga, really getting into parasympathetic mode can do wonders for people's pain. And almost everyone is stuck in flight or fight and you cannot heal from a place of flight or fight. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, even if you're not in pain, most of us are just on the go, go, go and stressed out. So we're always in seemingly in, in our sympathetic versus that parasympathetic mode. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that answer. I guess I never really thought of it that way. What's the book called again? The Way Out. The Way Out. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Mm-hmm. Lastly, talk about, before we get into any bits about red light therapy, if we haven't covered them, environmental toxins, what are the biggest culprits nowadays that you see uh, on a consistent basis? Gosh, there's so many. I mean, I would be remiss if I pretended to know all of them. I mean, even the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, estimates there are over 85,000 unregulated toxins in the water supply 
So, I mean, we don't even know half of what they are, right? So the big ones that are hotly talked about or debated are things like plastics, you know, BPA, um, BPS, BPF, some of the alternatives that were supposed to be better to BPA, which are not much better. These things are hormone disruptors. They really mimic estrogen in our body. They fool our body. They can bind to those receptors, really set up hormonal cascades and improper communication in the body, which lead to wonderful things like estrogen dominances, inability to sleep, cancer, all kinds of different things. So I would I would have to say plastics is a big one right now that all plastics need to go. Another one I would say is glyphosate, um, Roundup Ready. Um, and of course, the plethora of like grandfather pesticides and herbicides that came before it that never break down like DDT. These things really, again, are endocrine disruptors, and a lot of them are anticholinesterase inhibitors, meaning they mess with our neurotransmitters and our ability to get into parasympathetic mode. And so these are a huge problem now that you know glyphosate is being sprayed in the air. It's pretty ubiquitous, unfortunately, in our environment. I would think that babies are even being exposed in utero to something like this. So huge problem there. And then number three, I just got back from a parasympathetic reset retreat where they found heavy metals in my blood. I also would have to say heavy metals. I think a lot of the pathogens that are there, like candida, Lyme, EBV, are there because they're cleaning up or eating toxic metals and other toxins in the bloodstream and lymph and other issues. Bacteria are known as the great decomposers. They're there to eat organic waste. And so if we have toxins and waste in us, we are probably more vulnerable to bacterial infestations, microbial infestations in general. And so I think honestly, plastics, glyphosate, all pesticides, and then heavy metals in general, but there's so many, it's hard to count. Right. That's the thing. Like you said, they're, they're so ubiquitous. How, I mean, you have to live inside a bubble essentially not to be exposed to, to some of them. So the plastics is pretty easy, right? Just replace all the plastics with, with glass and other alternatives for glyphosate. Do you just go organic? Even so doesn't some of that spray, like you said, in the air with all those farms so close that they can get contaminated as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it really affects the kidneys and the pineal gland. It binds to aluminum as well. Really just keeping your drainage pathways open. That's why I stress to people so much that things are in and out of the body because you can release things easily. It makes things a lot, a lot better for the body. No, that makes sense. So, yeah. yeah, if you're going to be exposed to environmental toxins, which we all are, as long as you're able to detox well, as long as you're able to sweat, at least they're able to get out versus um, being stagnant and just being held in your body, right? Yeah, exactly. Heavy metals. Same thing though, right? As long as you're able to sweat, isn't there a chelation process or maybe that differs yeah. from, from... Obviously, some people's genetic predispositions make it easier for their body to recognize heavy metals than others. But in general, you know, you can release a lot from sweat. Like I mentioned, they can come out in feces, they can come out in urine, um, our lymph does a lot of work if it moves things into the bile and then out through the bowels as well. So all of this organ systems work as a whole. So you really need stagnation breeds disease. We need to have everything flowing properly. Yep. I agree. And lastly, Dr. Jess, red light therapy, have you had any personal success with it or how do you utilize it? Do you suggest it to your patients? Have they had any cool success stories that you could share with the audience? Well, I definitely have 
red light, you know, the red lights that I can turn on in my clear light sauna. And I actually use the BioLite red light on my teeth and gums, which I've noticed a big difference in. That's really helped me. I have a lot of inflammation naturally in my gums. I feel like people either deal with cavities or you deal with gingivitis, one or the other. So I'm more of a gingivitis girl, unfortunately. So I've really been using the red light on my gums, which I can tell the biggest difference in, I think. And I use the red light in my sauna as well. So it really stimulates beautiful skin, in my opinion, you know, growth and collagen reformation, all that stuff you want. So that's my personal experience. Yeah, that's pretty darn good. I mean, just to hear hear about the gums, because that can be kind of a sticky wicket to treat. So having something as simple as light to help kind of rev that or, or mitigate it, it's pretty cool to hear. In skin, like you're saying, as you get older, you, you lose that mobility to produce as much elastin or collagen. You lose circulation to the superficial portions of your skin tissue, and that's where the wrinkles and aging comes in. So yeah, red light therapy, that's one of the top things in, in research is being able to to treat the skin, whether it's anti-aging or, or wounds or diminishing scars, so on and so forth. So yeah, that's a pretty common one. Lastly, Dr. Jess, I think I said lastly before, but lastly, can you tell us more about your, your website or I believe wellness plus all your different courses and the stuff that you have to offer. So if people want to kind of connect with you or learn more from you, they can have those sources. Yeah, absolutely. So I have just a regular website at drjessmd.com. I've got a lot of blogs there if you like to read and some information about me and some FAQs that you guys asked for. There's levels to how you can work with me. If you'll probably see a button there to click over to my website app, which is app.drjessmd.com. That is a monthly, quarterly, or your annual subscription, which lets you guys interact with me more. Basically, I have a webinar, which is about an hour to two hours every two weeks where you can ask me questions live. I have a community forum just like Facebook where I come in and answer questions a couple times per week as, as well as having other three other doctors help me in the forum too because it's pretty popping. Um, we have root cause quickies. You guys can write in and ask us to research and find holistic reasons and solutions for. We have a store, we have a plethora of articles. And then I film professional courses that I ask my subscribers and tribe what they want to hear. So you guys really control what kind of information is put on the platform. And it's totally uncensored. So we can talk about things you can't talk about anywhere else. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. So a lot of different resources and check her out on Instagram, guys, Dr. Jess MD, lots of great information there as well. I mean, you could just scroll through her, through her feed and it's like reading a book of health and wellness information. Dr. Jess, really appreciate your time. Know you're a busy person. Give us the audience one suggestion of what they could do today to help improve their health and wellness, whether we've talked about it um, on this episode or not. Absolutely. So I really think just getting your feet on the ground and going for a walk in nature. If you guys have the ability to do so, it's really important to be amongst, don't and take, don't take your phone, leave your phone at home or in your car when you go on a hike and you, you be around the trees, be out in nature. This is something that really is able to put us into parasympathetic mode right away. And if you aren't near any sort of nature, first of all, I'm sorry, but I guess the next best thing would be to be to put on music. I don't know, Latin music, whatever gets you hype and dance. Um, because we store a lot of trauma, emotion, things in our bodies we don't realize. So shaking things out literally through working out, dancing or walking, getting in nature can really help people return to baseline. Forest bathing is like one of my favorite. I mean, I'm lucky I live in Montana. I have an amazing 
hiking trail, like five, five minutes from where I live. It, I compared to some of the hikes in, in Glacier National Park. So I'm pretty darn, yeah, very fortunate, but Hey, why not combine uh, some dancing in the forest? That's Get to both worlds. Yeah. Become a, a, a forest elf and they're just the happiest things ever. Right. So, yeah. I mean, literally it's almost like becoming a child again, doing what made you happy as a child and returning to happiness and what makes you whole and fulfilled, which people don't often ask anymore. That's a good point. Kind of finding your flow state. I think we're, yeah, like you're saying, we're, we're always on the go, always busy doing something and ignoring what brings us happiness and joy. So it's easy to bypass that for something else. So taking the time, making it a consistent part of your life, leaving the phone. That's another good one. It's easy to always, always want to stay connected. Yes. Good answer. All right, Jess, uh, again, appreciate your time. Thanks for taking, uh, taking the time to educate the audience. For Dr. Jess, this is Dr. Mike Belkowski signing off of the Red Light Report. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.